This is episode 240 of That Shakespeare Life. Just like the work of William Shakespeare, That Shakespeare Life is supported by patrons. Listeners just like you sign up to support our show and the work that we bring you here each week. You can get access to bonus content, including behind-the-scenes look at the making of our show and the opportunity to ask questions that get published live on the air, all inside our patrons area. Check out the bonuses at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. Hello, I'm Valerie Shrimplin, and I've just really enjoyed speaking to Cassidy Cash about Sir Thomas Gresham. This is part of Cassidy's efforts to set the scene for Shakespeare and the background of his life in late Tudor England. I've really enjoyed doing it. I found Cassidy very engaging and helpful, and I would recommend that you have a look at her her website and her podcasts. Based on the number of voyages that Squanto took back over to England and just his experience, we have a good sense that Squanto not only learned English, but was able to get some good insight into the culture. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. One of the heroes of American history and the story of survival of the English colonists at Plymouth in the mid-17th century is a man named Squanto. We've heard a lot about Squanto over the years, especially here in the United States, when he comes up a lot around the celebrations of Thanksgiving. His given name was Tisquantum, but he came to be known as Squanto. He was a Native American interpreter and guide for early English colonists. While little is known about his early life, some scholars believe that he was taken from his home to England in 1605 by George Weymouth and returned to his native homeland with explorer John Smith in 1614 to 1615. His almost decade-long residence in London coincides with when Shakespeare was writing plays about shipwrecked colonists encountering native tribes on mysterious faraway islands. Here today to share with us the history of Squanto and some of the details about his life you may not know are our guests and friends of that Shakespeare life, David and Aaron Bradford. Hello, David and Aaron. It's so good to have you back on the show again today, especially for Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving to you both. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah. Great time of year for this. (laughs) Tell us about George Weymouth. Why was Squanto on the ship with George Weymouth going back to Europe? Well, George Weymouth was a ship captain who primarily uh, was involved with the exploration around the northern parts of, initially, around the northern parts of Newfoundland and Maine. So he was much north of, of the Plymouth area, but he was involved in uh, really trying to prepare the uh, or learn about what was going on in the eastern coast of the New World, as they saw it. wasn't new to the Native Americans there, obviously, but it was uh, certainly... Uh, new to the uh, people from England. Yes, indeed. And that is something of a question regarding George Weymouth and his role with Squanto. Some historians believe that Squanto 
along with at least four Penobscot youths, were captured by George Weymouth and were taken back to England to be used as slaves. However, there are other historians who have noted and perhaps even wondered if George Weymouth was so much farther north, as David just said, up there near Newfoundland and places like that. For him to go as far south as Guanto was from originally, which was in Massachusetts Bay at a place called Patuxet, that might have been something of a, a challenge for him to go that far south. So as we talk about Squanto today, he is a rather mysterious figure in some ways. And as we look back through history, uh, it's a great illustration of there are certain things that we can know for sure and document, and that there are other details of his life and others who lived in the early 1600s that are a bit mysterious. Now, I know that Squanto has been placed by a couple of historians back in London, but was Squanto living in London when Shakespeare was there? Well, that's a good question. It's, uh, there are thoughts that there were a lot of Indians that actually, a good number that had already been in London when Shakespeare was there between up till 1612. And of course, he died in 1616. So he would have been a, very familiar with the different people that came. But when Squanto actually arrived is in somewhat, honestly, dispute, but it's, there are different possibilities that could have happened there. Am I correct that we do know Squanto was in London, but we're just not sure about the timing? The actual dates that he that he was there, what he had coincided with the times that Shakespeare was was actually living there. It's kind of like with the question about Pocahontas being in London from 1616 to 1617. Well, uh, Shakespeare died in 1616. There's a possibility that they might have met because he would have certainly been introduced to those that were there because there there weren't a prolific number of people, but there were, and it was quite a event for people to get to meet those that had come over from, from the new world. Aaron, what do we know about Fernando Gorges in London and, and his interactions with Squanto? Yes. So Fernando Gorges, we know was very influential in equipping and sending out voyages over to what was known as the new world. And so we know that he was living in London at the time. There's a very strong possibility that he interacted with Squanto. And based on the number of voyages that Squanto took back over to England and just his experience, we have a good sense that Squanto not only learned English, but was able to get some good insight into the culture, into the world of England. So Gorges was, again, instrumental and certainly influenced Squanto with his training and preparation. And in equipping these voyages over to the New World, having people who could speak multiple languages and serve as interpreters and guides were extremely important. So he was pretty well known and established there and made a big impact. And so their paths definitely crossed. And we can also see how Squanto, by being from Patuxet in what became known as Massachusetts Bay and having those interactions very uniquely prepared him to not only be able to speak the language, but to have a profound insight into these different cultures when they met later in Plymouth. So why was Squanto able to return with John Smith in 1614, 1615? Well, Squanto was able to help John Smith. He was in the process of mapping out a lot of the uh, area there, and he actually assigned the names to the uh, the Patuxet was named Plymouth on John Smith's map 
that uh, Squanto was able to guide him. One of the big things that we know about Squanto was that he was a very familiar with the land all across, all along that area between Maine and as far south as as almost uh, New York Harbor there. So he was he was very uh, knowledgeable of the areas and, and and had been around there a lot. What did Squanto find back in Plymouth when he arrived there? When Squanto arrived back in Plymouth, he uh, expected to find his family and his uh, people of his tribe. And it was entirely had been essentially wiped out by this plague or some type of life threatening. There's different conjecture as to what type of illness and disease it was because it was very targeted. The surprising thing that most people don't realize, they it was it wasn't this massive they talk about a 200 mile strip of, of land that was affected by it, but it actually affected that Coconut tribe and the Patuxet area. It was very concentrated, which is kind of surprising because if you go south and you look at the Nauset, they were unaffected by it. The Narragansett down around modern day Connecticut and Bristol, they were not affected by it. The Massachusetts tribe up north was not really affected by it. So it, it wasn't this massive all along the eastern seaboard, but it was very much targeted around the Patuxet area, which was surprising. And what Squanto found was, and, and what the pilgrims found when they when they arrived and started visiting up in up at the Soams, which is about 40 miles west of Plymouth, they went out into the areas and found, you know, dead bodies, I mean, bones and things lying. They couldn't bury them all because people were dying so rapidly and so many people had died. So it was a very devastating, it was like the uh, apocalypse in some way for Squanto to go back and expect to see the people that he knew and to find this area so ravaged and feeling very alone and abandoned. So after Squanto came back and he found his village decimated, we know that at some point between that tragedy and 1620, he's interacting with the pilgrims. So what do we know about Squanto's interaction with the pilgrims when they arrived at Plymouth in 1620? When the pilgrims arrived in 1620, the Squanto, he was aware that they arrived, but uh, along with the other Nauset Indians, and uh, but they did not really reach out in, until the spring of the following year. So in uh, March of 1621 is when Squanto came to speak to, and, and actually was involved after Samoset came out, came into their into their midst and, and introduced himself. And then there was the negotiation with the uh, Massasoit Astamequin, who was the chief of the Wampanoag Nation, if you will, about 30 tribes spread around that area. Squanto was very influential and a, Bradford referred to him as an instrument sent of God for our good beyond our expectation. He directed us how to set our corn and where to take fish and procure other commodities and was our pilot and took us to unknown places for our profit and never left us till he died. The interesting thing about that is that all took place in about the, the next 20 months. So the pilgrims really only knew the, the surprising thing, I think, that most people don't realize is that, that uh, Squanto involvement with the pilgrims happened condensed into about a year and a half of his life. And it was the last 20 months of his life. Uh, he died when he was 46 years old. So up until this time, uh, he didn't really know the pilgrims, but his interactions with them, he was their chief negotiator. He was the ambassador. He actually lived around the, his homeland or the Plymouth the colony there or the Patuxet area. 
And he did have interactions and was the uh, the one to speak and communicate with the, all the, the sachems or chiefs of all the different tribes in that area. So he was very, very influential, very important. And Bradford saw that as his primary blessing was that he was he would have lost his voice. In fact, even the the uh, Indian chief Corbettan said if uh, he didn't, if Squanto wasn't alive, they wouldn't they would lose their voice. They would not be able to. And he was not a big fan of having the the way Massasoit was attempting to establish a more edifying relationship and a supportive relationship because they had their own needs. Uh, there was a lot of threats that they experienced from the Narragansett to the south and the Nosset. There was not a lot of they were were not the dominant tribe back in that area, and they faced their own threats. And they thought the Pilgrims would be a a support, and that's part of the uh, part of the terms of their treaty involved this helping each other out if they were unfairly attacked by by others. So this went both ways. And Squanto was very instrumental in in helping negotiate that. And he he was their their primary uh, advocate and ambassador to the tribes in that area. All right. So considering the role of Squanto in 1620 and his interaction with Plymouth, when we think of Squanto, perhaps uh, one way to think about him is almost a man without a country. We mentioned how he had returned to his home and found the vast majority of his tribe completely wiped out. And so with that background and based on his skills and his ability, uh, one can better appreciate when the pilgrims arrived, how Squanto saw that he had an opportunity to make himself very useful, which Bradford described that he was. But we also know that Squanto is very influential. And with the great death that had wiped out uh, many people before, we know that he actually threatened some of the different groups of American Indians with unleashing that plague from underneath the ground. And by saying that he had a powerful relationship with the pilgrims, he could then turn that weapon of mass destruction, as it were, on uh, rival American Indian tribes. It made him very powerful. And so you know that Squanto was uh, quite the statesman, or, or perhaps not a statesman rather, but quite the politician, and that he could use that power and that standing to great effect. So when we think of Machiavelli, perhaps, or just that pragmatism, Squanto demonstrated that and a great uh, ability when it comes to that. So we also know that Massasoit was rather untrusting of the pilgrims at first, and that Squanto became a source of contention between Massasoit and Governor William Bradford of the Pilgrims. We also know that Massasoit actually sought to have Squanto put to death for the cause of not honoring uh, the peace treaty agreements. And Bradford was quite torn because he said, well, according to this agreement, uh, we should hand him over, but we cannot spare him. Uh, We need him. We also know that there is a great demonstration of Massasoit's chains of heart when he was extremely deathly ill. And it was when the pilgrims were able to send their physician and you scraped the brown fur off the back of his tongue and gave him some broth and basically brought Massasoit back to health. Massasoit said that now I know that the Englishmen love me and are my friends. And even after that profound change of heart that Massasoit had with pilgrims, 
there's still that mistrust of Squanto. And Squanto is extremely influential. And yet, I think that's another way to think of Squanto as being a very savvy diplomat and used his unique position uh, and his language and his knowledge of the area to great effect. So Squanto is very influential and very powerful. And that, I think, puts him just in something of a different light than most people think of when they think of Squanto and his relationship with pilgrims. Do you think it's fair to say that Squanto was at least somewhat deceptive? I mean, it sounds like he was operating more as a double agent. I think that's a pretty accurate assessment, accurate in that he realized his skill, his knowledge of the area, and his position, and was able to play off some of the fear and play off some of the questions um, about the even military capacity of the pilgrims and use that to create advantage. So I think that he was, I don't know if that necessarily deceptive, but he used the knowledge that he had to create effect. We also think too that initial encounter even, it's sometimes called the first encounter when the pilgrims were in their shallop and they were exploring Cape Cod in Massachusetts Bay. And one of the initial interactions between some of the American Indians and the pilgrims and the Indians loosed their bows and arrows and a number of holes were punched right through the doublets or the jackets that the pilgrims had that they had spread out next to a fire to dry. And so the pilgrims fired back with their matchlock muskets. And so just with the armor and the weaponry that the pilgrims had, that gave them a huge advantage over the American Indians. So Squanto knew that. And so just his Again, how political savvy he was is very remarkable and shows just a keen insight into the cultures. What do you think is one of the most surprising things about Squanto's history? And David, you can answer this question as well. I think that there's a lot of misconceptions about Squanto's life. And I wonder what is one of the most common things that you might want to correct about our understanding of Squanto? Well, in response to that question, I think of three things that come to my mind that most people who've, who've looked into and researched the, the uh, life of Squanto and what happened at that time. I don't think people really understand how well acquainted with English culture uh, uh, Squanto was because he had been over in London and he he actually knew these people that he was traveling with. He served them as a, you know, as a slave person. He was still, uh, he served them to communicate with all the different tribes and to and they had great value for him and his being able to be an ambassador and to the English as well. So he he wasn't some naive, someone who didn't know anything about the English. I mean, the fact that he could speak better English than the broken English that Samoset had learned from just some of the, the fishermen that he had picked up this, some useful language from. But Squanto could communicate very well. And, and that was uh, and that's something that we. We need to understand, and he had a lifetime of preparation of this. When, and all of the things, the bad things that happened to his life, they all served what was going on at this time to uh, uniquely bring understanding and communication between the English and the Native Americans. The other thing I think most people don't realize is this part of his nature. This is the ambition and the the desire to. He basically was charged with undermining and, and sedition by the by Massasoit, and Massasoit actually declared, you know, that uh, he was he was basically an enemy of them. He became very 
disenfranchised with them and actually sent people to the colony to bring bring MS Squanto back to to face justice. And they to them at that time for what he was doing was the penalty was death. And because Bradford balked at that, that created uh, some real tension between those two. And uh, Massasoit very quickly stopped uh, communicating with the pilgrims. And so it really threatened the the peace and the, the trust that had been established when they first, over the first few months in that first year. So again, I, I don't think that's something that's very well understood, that Massasoit actually sent his his knife to have him have them execute the judgment uh, to to uh, kill him, cut off his hands and his, his head, and send it back as as proof that they had executed the judgment. That's something most people don't associate with. Wow, he was he was in really bad straits with his own Poconoke tribe or the Wampanoag uh, people. I think the last thing that, that strikes me is something that's most people don't quite understand is how little time amount of time that he actually spent helping the pilgrims. You know, it sounds. Like he had spent, like Bradford says, he had spent his entire life, you know, until he died. And it's like, you think, wow, that must have been a lifetime. And it's like, no, all of this happened at the tail end of his life. It was all concentrated in that interaction that they had between 1620 and the fall of 1622, because that's when Squanto died. When it comes to common misconceptions about Squanto, I think his life in the profound impact that he had in his relationship with the pilgrims and with Massasoit is how incredibly complex the world in which he lived was. And far from being homogenous with Europeans and Native Americans, just the profound number of different tribes and how complex it was for Squanto to be able to understand that and to navigate that I think is a misconception about the world in which he lived as well as his life. And when we just think back to his life and the events that transpired early and him being captured and brought back to Europe and the voyages that he had back and forth, his relationship with John Smith, uh, Squanto is someone who strikes me like someone there's a saying when it comes to history, it's like, that's so amazing. You can't make this stuff up. Or if you were to write a movie and you have your lead character do all these things in one lifetime. And so when you think about how many miles Squanto traveled and the things that he saw and experienced, it makes his unique preparation all the more remarkable. So it's pretty astonishing. To think about all that he did in his relatively short lifetime. Finally, I think it is something of a misconception too, just the close relationship that he had with William Bradford and with the pilgrims. And when people's lives are on the line and people are trusting one another, um, that is one of the closest relationships you can have. And so it's more than simply being nice to someone or enjoying hanging out with them. But again, getting back to pragmatically, thinking about the relationship that Squanto had with William Bradford, for good or for bad, just what an impact that had. It's pretty significant impact, certainly. And and I do think these are important points to make about how nuanced any you know human is, but certainly the story of Squanto has an elaborate history to to be explored, definitely. 
Now, you mentioned that his interactions with the pilgrims were towards the tail end of his life. And I wonder what we know about Squanto's death. David, how did Squanto die? And do we know where he's buried? Good question. We do know where he died and where he is purported to have been buried. They were on a uh, another trade mission over by uh, on the far side of the of Pleasant Bay, it's called, by Manamoyak, which was uh, the, the uh, area by Chatham or Eastham area on the neck of Cape Cod right now. That's where he was down. They were on a another trade mission. It's interesting how he became sick very quickly and died within three days. Uh-huh. And there is people that purport that he was buried there who had a Christian burial because one of the things when he died, he had asked that he would be be with the the pilgrim's God and that he had had a what would be called a conversion experience or at least a dedication of his trust in the God of the Bible and of Jesus Christ for his salvation. So he would have been buried there. And there is evidence they found recent not too recent not too long ago of where there's a, a Christian burial that would have been in some bones there. So people say, ah, here's where here's where he was buried. But it was right around that area near Chatham, current day Chatham. But yet there's also those that say his body and his bones were buried up on Burial Hill and in Plymouth, because that's, again, he spent the last couple of years of his life very much connected with the, and living with, in Patuxent, the area where he's born. And uh, so he may have been, they may have taken him back there and buried him. We really don't know for sure. But we do know the other interesting thing was because of Brett, this was, again, Bradford had laid the the Indian justice that was um, due, so to speak, uh, Squanto. There are those who believe that he may have been poisoned or killed as as sort of Massasoit because he didn't come out. Bradford refused to send him back. And so because of how quickly he became ill and died, they were wondering, people would speculate that maybe he was, uh, someone was able to get to him and execute that judgment. So it wasn't necessarily a natural cause or he caught some illness. I mean, no one else caught any illness. No one else was sick and died during that time. So certainly a lot of reason to suspect a lot of, foul yeah, a play. A lot of reason yeah. that, that they had actually were just, uh, you know, they executed the judgment that uh, that they felt was, that I say they, the Asamequan and Native American tribe up there had actually executed the judgment, not not the pilgrims, but. Right. I mean, Squanto's life is fascinating, and I know we're limited on what we have left to know about him because a lot of his history is based in oral tradition. What books or resources can you recommend they use to learn more? That's a great question. And, and two that come to mind, what we know about the details of his involvement with the uh, pilgrims, certainly during that last 20 months of his life, you're going to find that in Mort's relation, which is Winslow and Bradford's account, but also a Plymouth plantation, they give you the facts of what happened. But that does come from the English viewpoint. And uh, a book I've come across that that covers the same facts so you can have confidence in the facts of what happened. David Silverman in his book, This Land is Their Land. It's subtitled The Wampanoag Indians, Plymouth Colony, and the Troubled History of Thanksgiving. He actually uh, does a fairly nice job of, of bringing 
sort of that perspective that the Native Americans would have had uh, as far as how these events played out and and some of the possible perspectives that were that aren't commonly uh, shared. So it's, I think it's a nice balance if you if you look at that and, and you read that and you but again, just there's no substitute for reading some of the and digging into some of the documentation that we have, even the ones we were talking about earlier with Fernando Gorgis and some of his book, for example, that he wrote 1558, uh, I believe it was before he died or after you know, he when he died, he talks about some of the uh, he makes mention of, of Squanto and some of the Indians that he dealt with and the value, but what they, he had, had hoped they would be able to help them accomplish in, in settling the, the new that area along the eastern seaboard of, our, of North America. Well, as you know, from having been a guest on our show before, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's, what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible, so your choice would be in addition to those. I would highly recommend A Plymouth Plantation by William Bradford, of course, because I believe, for two really good reasons, I think, as much as I've read it, you can read it over and over and you can, it, it's, a, it's a tough book to read, but it's, it's a very satisfying book to read because you learn more the more you study it rather than just read it as a casual reader. And it does, in Bradford's words, he basically was giving it an objective account, a hum, in his humble opinion, this is what happened and this is why. This was their perspective. Uh, it may be flawed. And of course, people may come back and say, well, there's another view to this. And there certainly is. But you, you'll get an honest appraisal and an objective appraisal because he was not bringing, making himself look better. He, he puts a lot of stuff in there that you would not put in there if you were trying to make this uh, positive and, and an overly gratuitous you know, treatment of pilgrim history. He, was, he gives you the all facts, all the, the good, the bad, and the ugly. But he does it because he's trying to share from God's perspective what God was accomplishing because he didn't have that biblical worldview that says there are things that are true. And these things were true in a very objective sense. And so, yeah, you can study it forever. And it's a book you can read over and over, much like the Bible itself. That's a fascinating selection. And we will link, as addition to the resources that the Bradfords are sharing with you today about Squanto and the Pilgrims, these Desert Island books suggestions will also be placed in the show notes for today's episode. So make sure you go there to see links where you can check out some of these books. Now, Aaron, I know you have a Desert Island book selection as well. So for your Desert Island visit, what would you like to share for your Desert Island book selection today? So. In reply, I suppose that the book Pilgrim's Progress uh, would be a fascinating read. I have read it before. Uh, it took me a while, and so it's a perfect book if I'm deserted on a desert island like that. But I also appreciate the profound imagery and just being a wonderful uh, allegory. Um, I've really enjoyed The Lord of the Rings or The Chronicles of Narnia, but the innovation of Pilgrim's Progress and the spiritual connections it makes in there are rather explicit and very powerful. And along those lines, uh, working here in Colonial Savannah, we've got statues of John Wesley, and we're well aware of George Whitfield and the great impact that they had during the Great Awakening. And George Whitfield was noted for just the power of imagery. It was Jonathan Edwards is another Great Awakening 
minister as well, in particular Jonathan Edwards, just the power of language. He would give his sermons in a very monotone, kind of dry delivery. And yet, even the analogy of a, or the illustration rather, of a spider being suspended over a pit of fire. And it's just that thin wire strand that keeps it suspended over there. He was very innovative with using examples in nature to make his point. And so the book Pilgrim's Progress is similar in that regard when it comes to the power of imagery. So that would be my book. I think if you're definitely going to explore the sermons that were known to be boring, if you had to sit and listen to them, reading them is the, is the way to go because you get to skip that. And so I think those are excellent choices for your desert island selection. And I love Pilgrim's Progress personally, too, for many of the reasons that you suggested. So we will link to those as well as David's desert island selections in the show notes for today's episode. Now, I would love to know about what you are working on now, guys. Well, the biggest thing we have in the works is the Pil- uh, 1620 experience. Uh, you can find out more by just checking. We have a website called 1620experience.com. Um, and we're putting a part, putting a eight part, eight episode uh, mini series that really explains a lot of, or, and dramatizes a lot of the very powerful interactions that happen during the, during this, this period we've been talking about these last 20 months, basically that really share what really went on in that experience. And it's not just trying to give it, give it a perspective, but also give, gives you the, the details and how powerful some of these events were that most people don't know about. Most people know about a lot of the very common things that happened, but they don't know the things that if you see it, you would say, wow, I didn't know that. Why didn't I know that? And these are the kind of things that help will help us today, I think, even navigate our way through some of the very similar situations that we're experiencing in our in our day and age as we speak. The screenplay is being wrapped up. The, the last episode is being finished now. We're beginning to look at uh, a production schedule for getting this out within the next year or so. That is just exciting news. I'm really looking forward to seeing this project come to fruition. And it's fun to follow along with the steps and just see it building little block by block towards finally being produced. And I definitely encourage you to visit the website and check out 1620 Project. Both David and Aaron are involved in this project. Aaron, you want to talk about your involvement with uh, the 1620 Project or stuff that you're working on at the moment? Yes, it's very exciting with the 1620 Experience Endeavor to have some fresh wind in our sails. And when one thinks about Mayflower, for instance, and how long it took to build a ship like that. In this project we've been working on for a while, you can appreciate having a good crew from the captain to the first mate. And so having an executive producer and director and the key players that are part of our crew have been coming together. We've also been making great progress when it comes to writing out our script. And so it's just very exciting to be able to take the approach of looking at the stories of the pilgrims and what they experienced and the people with whom they, the people who they met in 1620 to consider what they experienced, what they went through, but then make that accessible and how it applies to our country today. And when we think about history, it is possible to look at through history through a material lens and saying, well, of course they got the beaver pelts and of course they traded for deer skins or the tangible items. And one can look at history in material per- perspective 
But when one considers the motivations of why did people do the things that they did, um, it's not purely on a material level. And so it's just very exciting to think about how we can examine in a fresh, exciting way, in, in a faithful, accurate way, to learn more about the motivations um, behind what was experienced in 1620. And as we seek to have more of a roundtable discussion and hear from Americans today uh, with the 1620 experience, we're excited to have the live action element to make it engaging and interesting and illustrate what they went through, but at the same time, be able to have the thoughtful discussion about as well. So as we look at the pilgrims and look at how they relate to what are the principles and ideals of America, I'm excited to be able to draw those connections and make those applications into how what was experienced over 400 years ago still affects us today and help to set the foundations for America today. I wholeheartedly agree and applaud exactly what you're saying. I look forward to seeing 1620 experience come to life. And I I do think it's going to be a wonderful look at what life was like 400 years ago and just stories that deserve to be told. So I'm excited to have you both here with us today to take us back and share with us the history of Squanto and things that we may not have known about his life and his interaction with the pilgrims and certainly where his life crosses over with that of William Shakespeare. It's been a really fun conversation and I appreciate you both being here. Thank you. If if people would like to help us make that happen, uh, you could look at moviebank.tv. That's moviebank.tv. And you can actually uh, join us in helping to fund this type of an effort. So thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Absolutely. We'll link to Movie Bank in the show notes for today. And it's a worthy cause. So definitely consider supporting their film project there. Well, Cast, I just want to thank you so much for allowing us to come on and continue this tradition now, being able to explore the world of Shakespeare together. And I really appreciate what you're doing with your podcast, because by reading the words of the people who lived in a certain time, it gives such a tremendous insight into culture and motivations and aspirations, and gives a there's irreplaceable way to understand the people in the time of reading their words. So thank you so much for what you do with your podcast. And it's been such a delight to see or to discuss with you again today and appreciate all that you're doing. Oh, that's very kind. I really appreciate those words. Thank you so much, Aaron. It's my pleasure. Again, thank you so much and happy Thanksgiving. I know I am grateful for the both of you and being here for this interview today. And I just wish you the best holiday season. Bye-bye. Thank you. If you liked our show today, be sure to let us know about it. Drop us a comment and a rating on the platform you're listening from today. If you'd like to see some visual elements that coordinate with our show, including some portraits of Squanto that were drawn after his death, as well as some of the original documents that David and Aaron shared with us today about William Bradford writing about the life of Squanto and some of the maps that John Smith and Squanto would have helped put together about the area of Plymouth, you can see all kinds of visual content, bonus history, and links to the resources our guests recommend for you, all packed into the show notes for our episode. You can access the show notes at Cassidy cash.com slash episode 240. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP240. 
If you love learning about Shakespeare's history here with us each week and you would like to be a part of supporting our show as well as get discounted coupons to all of the items in our That Shakespeare shop, you want to explore our patrons area. Inside our patrons area, we have bonus content like sneak peeks at upcoming guests, the chance to submit your own questions to be asked during an episode, as well as the opportunity to see some bonus content like three-minute animated plays and exclusive documentary films donated by partnering history organizations and a whole lot more. We have tons of special extras for listeners just like you who help support the work we do here at That Shakespeare Life in connecting with amazing guests and really diving into the archival information that's available to bring you the very best of Shakespeare's history here each week. If you would like to get this VIP access to our online community, then join us as a patron today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. That Shakespeare Life is researched and produced by me, Cassidy Cash. Our audio engineer is Gary Mayholm. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I hope you and yours enjoy a very happy Thanksgiving. And thank you so much for being listeners here of the show and spending time with us this week. We hope you learned something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.